Well, friends, welcome back to the Thrive Leadership Podcast. I am Brad Lominick, or as my as my Zoom handle says, Brad Lominick Mac. Mm. I'm not sure how to change that. CJ Alvarado, on the other hand, who is the co-host, when you look at his Zoom profile, it's a nice picture of yourself. <laughs> it says your name, and I got all I got is a dark, you know, a, a, a screen that says Brad Lominick Mac. So, right, like you're you're recording in the in the basement. And basically an old yeah, speakeasy I mean, or something i need i need you to help me with my zoom uh my zoom profile right Let's but it is uh it, it is time for another edition of the of the old thrive leadership podcast and That's right. we're your we're your co-host that are going to take you along on the on this uh on this journey for a few minutes are you doing all right i'm doing great i mean this season's this season's crazy but uh doing great it's it, it's uh cuckoo for cocoa puffs Remember that? Remember the, was that Lucky Charms or no? It's just it was Cocoa Puffs. Yeah, yeah. We're cuckoo yeah. for Cocoa Puffs. So That's right. It's been a it's been a strange year. And Very strange. Continues but, to get stranger. Yes, it does. But uh, uh, you know that the timing's great because this guest that we have, Sam Collier, who's mm. you know seems to be speaking everywhere, has an incredible message. Has a new book out, I believe, called The Greater Story. Yes, uh, but. But he talks about how, you know, pain and sometimes all this stuff that's happening can can be a part of that greater story in our lives. So I'm kind of looking figure, looking forward to digging into this and, and letting people listen to this interview. Listen, I've known Sam for many years, and I will say this about Sam. He's a, you know, he's a speaker, he's an author, he's a he is the he is the just recently introduced new pastor, along with his wife Tony, of Hillsong Atlanta. That's and right. That's, the, the, you know, this is like a, this is not only a big deal for, for him and his wife, but it's also a big deal for Hillsong because they are the, they're the first African-American uh, lead pastor that is in, in the Hillsong family. They've got lots of other pastors who are, um, you know, black and brown uh, in different parts of the country. But in terms of just that lead pastor level, they're, um, they're the, you know, they're the first. And so, whether Sam talks about that in this interview or not, I think he will, but he is one of those leaders that lights up any room he walks into. And if you're around Sam, you're laughing, you feel good about yourself. You walk away and you feel encouraged. You know, he, he brings like this positive energy and you can tell just based on his laugh, yeah. you know, if you don't know Sam, when you hear his laugh, you're like, I'm going to like this guy just based on his laugh solely. Yeah. Um, and he has an incredible story that he'll get into in terms of adoption and uh, his childhood growing up in the, in the city of Atlanta. So yes, I I'm so excited to every time I get the chance to, to introduce Sam to new friends and a, a wider audience, it's, it's a good day. Yeah, I agree. And so with this, this interview, uh, we're going to be kind of spying in on a chat. He and Andrew McCourt, one of the senior pastors over at Bayside, yeah. uh, we're having, and uh, so this conversation happened maybe just a couple of weeks ago. And so uh, we could take it to them. Let's go. Andrew McCourt and Sam Collier. Let's go. 
Yeah, everyone, welcome to the Ray Johnson Leadership Podcast. It's always a fantastic, apparently I'm looking at this camera, forgive me. Uh, we always love um, that you connect with us. Uh, and we always try to get you what we would regard as some of the world's best leaders. And by saying best leaders, it's people that have got high character, high integrity, that love Jesus and love people. And they're committed to seeing the kingdom of God literally promoted throughout the earth. And today it's a privilege for us to have a guy called Sam Collier. Now get ready for this, everyone. There's so many things here to check off. He's a pastor. He's a speaker. He's obviously a husband. He's a father. He's a writer. And he's a host of the greater story, obviously with Sam Collier, uh, and the TV show, a radio podcast that currently airs uh, in a hundred million homes. And we've got him on the Ray Johnston podcast. Sam, wow, I could just keep going. There's even more down here. What a guy you are. And thanks for being here. Andrew, such an honor to be a part. Listen, as I said, Ray and also Thrive and Bayside, you guys are legendary all around the world. And so to be able to participate in this moment is just a true honor. And, you know, all of the things that you said, Sound amazing, but uh, you know I really am truly honored to be here. It does it does truly feel like an accomplishment and uh, a moment to be a part of. Okay, do you want to tell everyone just where in the world you are today, why you're located there, and what is life like for you? Wow, I mean, you know, feels like since COVID nineteen, we all are kind of living in the same world, right? I mean. <laughs> because of the internet, seems like that's the only way we talk to each other. You know, somebody I'm on a Zoom session and I'm asking, are you in Paris or are you in Nashville? Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just like we're all at home. But I am here in um, Atlanta, Georgia, born and raised here, which we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but kind of the birthplace of civil rights. I uh, have done a lot yeah. of things with uh, Andy Stanley for a long time and uh, connected to the North Point Ministries family. Um, and now me and my wife are planning a church next year in the Atlanta area. So we're excited about that. I cannot say the name of it right now, but I will say it is coming. And, um, you know, just here residing with my family and um, and, and being a part of COVID-19. And so <laughs> here we are. Oh, wow. Well, again, we thank you so much in your busy schedule, taking time out to talk to us. And Sam, I think this is a timely moment because the Lord is using your in so many ways. But, but let's just try and get a little bit more into your roots and some of your story. And actually the story, the word story is so important to you because yeah. you come out with a book and the, the phrase, a greater story, is deeply connected to you. Why, why is that so special in your life? Yeah, well, you know, our tagline is when your story connects to God's story, it leads to a greater story. And so for the past maybe three years, we have been focused on kind of getting this manuscript out on Baker Publishing, and it truly has been a labor of love. And the way this whole thing started, and I'll give you the end and then go back to the beginning of how we got there. Um, met my biological family for the first time after 25 years on national television on the Steve Harvey show. Wow. Um, and th the way we got there was crazy. But I started to tell that story at one of the North Point Ministries campuses, Gwinnett Church, under the leadership of Jeff Henderson, ultimately under the leadership of Andy Stanley. Andy saw it, caught wind, and um, invited me to do it at the different campuses. And it was from that moment 
that a greater story, the movement, the television show, the podcast, the manuscript, and ultimately the mantra uh, was born and birthed. Um, and it was just really from us telling the story of how we got there uh, that led us to the significance of that phrase and to the idea that maybe there are people out there, especially during this season of COVID-19, who find themselves living in a mess in need of a miracle. And God is truly still in the miracle business. This isn't the prosperity gospel, but it is a gospel that says that God is able to do yeah. more than what we can even think. He may not do it every, every time the way we want him to do it, but the question is, is he able? And the answer is yes. And so that's what a greater story is about, that when you connect your story to his, it truly does lead to something greater. Wow. So um, three years ago, I was walking down the Champs-Élysées in Paris, just with my kids, that famous avenue in the, in the center of that beautiful city. And literally, I stopped my boys and I said, whoa, that's Steve Harvey in the center of Paris. He's coming out with like some bags in his hand from a store. Yeah. And I went, hey, buddy, I know you. You don't know me. And I said, well, can we get a photograph? And he was so kind and he was so nice. I got to meet him on a street in Paris, but you got to be on a show. Do you want to yeah. tell us a little bit about how that happened and, and what? Of course. Well, the story begins um, with my mother who had us, me and my twin sister at age 21, and she had three kids already. So that's five kids, age 21, extreme poverty, um, welfare, food stamps. Um, our father had left the picture because he had an issue with substance abuse. Uh, and he was addicted to, to drugs and, all, and, and, left, and left. Actually, um, if I put a pause right there in the story and jump back to three months ago, um, we lost him uh, from COVID-19 in New York City in the hotbed when New York was the hotbed of COVID. And we lost him uh, because he had diabetes. He was in the hospital. He left the hospital in the middle of the hotbed and went down the street to get drugs, contracted COVID-19 on the streets, oh. went back to the hospital and passed away. Oh. I've never met my biological father. I've talked to him twice. Uh, my biological mother reached out to me um, about a few days later and said that, that he had passed away. And I tell you that story to jump back to my mother being 21 in the hospital um, and letting you know uh, why my father wasn't there and how long substance abuse um, was a part of his life and a part uh, of his story. And so he wasn't there. So my mother is faced with this decision. Do I raise these two twins in poverty like I've raised the other three or do I give them up for adoption in hopes that things would go well? Um, and so she does. She gives us up for adoption. She sends us up the river like Moses, as I often say, in hopes that things work out. And don't get too sad because we do get adopted. Uh, by a lovely couple, and I'll fast forward through this story to get you back to Steve Harvey. We get adopted <laughs> by um, a lovely couple who met in Washington, D.C. on a Sunday afternoon, about a year prior to them coming to adopt us, and they were in this laundromat. And my, my father was walking around, the one that raised me, the one that adopted me, washing clothes. My mother was walking around. They didn't know each other. Washing clothes, the one that raised me, the one that adopted me. 
but they were in the laundromat for two different reasons. My father was in the laundromat to wash clothes. My mother was in the laundromat to have an alibi because the night before she went to the laundromat, she was in a marriage and he had hit her in the head with a hammer. And so she got up the next morning saying, by any means necessary, I have to get out of this situation. So she had a gun with her in her purse, walking around the laundromat, looking crazy. And my father walks up to her and is trying to talk to her. And she's like, get off me. You know, she's, you know, when you're getting ready to go commit a crime. And so they end up walking out of the laundromat together. She doesn't go and kill her ex-husband. She gets a divorce. My father is going through his second divorce and they start dating. And for the first time in their life, my dad was around 52. They gave their life to Christ. After they gave their life to Christ, they got married. They start and they realized my mother couldn't have kids. So they left Washington, D.C. to come down to Atlanta, Georgia, to drive an hour to Augusta, Georgia, where we had just been given up for adoption. Two months prior. They walk over to our crib and they say, we want them. The lady that's running the adoption agency says, no, you don't want them. They come from poverty. They come from prostitution. A a lot of the things, they come from substance abuse. And here's what she said. They're probably not going to be much. So you don't want to adopt them. My parents formed what I would call a prayer closet in the middle of that adoption home. They said, God, what would you have us do? Wow. And they said, God said to them, these are your kids. They're going to be all right. They're going to be fine. Long story short, they adopt us. My sister, twin, gets all A's from kindergarten up to 12th grade, becomes an industrial engineer, dual scholarship to Spelman in Georgia Tech. And I'm here with Thrive. (laughs) I feel like I made it. God took a mess and really did turn it into a miracle. Fast forward a couple of years and we're getting back to Steve Harvey. We'll come around. We're around in third base. It's my father. Jesus and Steve Harvey. That's what it is. Jesus and Steve Harvey. That's what it is. <laughs> well, around in third base. I told you I grew up on Auburn Avenue. Birthplace of civil rights across the street from the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Change, okay. where the above tombs of Coretta and MLK sit. I've been friends with Dr. King's daughter, Bernice, for a long time now. Wow. Um, and my dad had a barbershop on Auburn. So he was watch, watching TV every day. Obviously, that's what you do in the, I mean, in the black barbershop. You do a lot of things, but watch TV is one of them. And he would watch the Steve Harvey show every day. And so around age 24, he says that the Lord told him that Steve Harvey was going to help us find our biological family. And I thought he was crazy and lost his mind. I got up and walked out of the room. And he convinced my sister to write in because he said, listen, it's time for you guys to go find your biological family because it's impossible to maximize where you're going if you don't know where you came from. Wow. And so my sister writes in. She thought nothing would happen. A year goes by. My phone rings. It's my sister. I answer. She said, the Steve Harvey show just called me. They're going to call you by and hangs up, hangs up the phone. <laughs> And the next two minutes, my phone rings. It's the Steve Harvey show. Dorothy is working there and she says, listen, we think we can help you find your biological family. Do you want to do it? They fly us up to the show. They say we couldn't find anybody. We're so sorry, but we want to bring you on the show to make a plea that maybe they would show up. 
Um, and so we go to commercial break. We come back after commercial break and Steve Harvey looks at me and my twin sister and he says, I know I told you we didn't find anybody, but that's not the case. Your biological mother is here. Eleanor, come on out. Wow. And then he says, and your three brothers and sisters, same mother, same father. And we met our biological family for the first time on national television. And then after that, the book was written. So um, <laughs> that's the story, bro. Wow, what a story. I mean, no wonder you're calling this a greater story. Just just take us to that moment. What was that like meeting your biological mom? Uh, well, that, that's, you know, and the siblings. Yeah, man, it was surreal. You know, if you, if you get a chance uh, to Google Steve Harvey, Sam Collier, what, you can watch the video. There's a moment after she walks out, I just put my head down because I was frozen. There were so many emotions. I didn't know if to be happy, sad, angry at Steve. Um, so, you know, I, I, I um, and so I just sat there in shock and, and stunned. And eventually God had to speak to me. And he said to me, you're on national television. We'll deal with this later. But also your biological mother is standing in front of you. I want you to get up and embrace her. And that's what I did. And uh, it's, it's just, it's been, it's been almost seven years since that moment. And uh, we have established what, what I describe as a text relationship, a social media yeah. relationship. And then every now and then we pick up the phone and have a, and have a dialogue. And, um, but it's, it's just, it's been wild. I, I do really believe my dad was right um, that we had to discover our, our origin and where we came from, because it really did help to answer some questions that we had. Fantastic. Uh, the, the whole term, a greater story. Just talk to you about this and for everybody that's watching. Uh, theologically, what does that mean for the person that's out there? They're hurting. Maybe they're struggling with their identity. They're concerned about the future. That line's incredible. You can't know where you're going unless you know where you're coming from. Just just trying to explain to us the importance of the gospel in creating a greater story in our lives. Yeah, well, I, I think the scripture that comes to mind is when Jesus is telling the story about the sheep, but eventually he ends up on John 10, 10. It says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you would have life and you would have it more abundantly. When you get into the Greek of that idea of abundance, yeah. um, the Greek translation of that is actually advantage. So okay. Jesus is saying, I've come that you would have life, but have it, but have an advantage in yeah. this life. That you would know things that others don't know. That he would give you divine secrets. Ultimately, that there is an end goal to this. There is a greater story. There's a, then the life that you've been, li I've come that you would have life and have it to the full, have, have, have an advantage. And I, th I think above all, I think God has promised us a better life. Now, how you define better, right? Theologically is where we start to get into whatever, because we all define better in different terms, right? Mm -hmm. We all tend to define better based on where we live and what we're doing and all that. But, but regardless of how we define it, God has promised that he be with us yeah. in the imperfection that he, that he give us the ability to overcome. And in many cases, that means that he would prosper us for his good and for his glory. 
um, that we would be complete, lacking nothing, and that we would be safe woo, in his arms <laughs> and in, right, and under his covering. The story that comes to mind often is when Jesus is uh, in, the, in the boat with the disciples and the storm breaks out, kind of feels like where we are now, right? We, we were just kind of living our life and all of a sudden COVID-19 and, and death and all of these things, a storm breaks out over our life. Um, and we know what Jesus is doing. He's asleep. He's asleep in the boat and the, and the disciples are freaking out. Like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Wake up. The storm is here. And I love what Jesus says to them. But before we say what he says to them, let's notice what he doesn't say to them. He doesn't say, are you okay? He doesn't say, hey, things are going to get better. He's not encouraging. He says, oh, ye of little faith. In other words, the priority in the story is not the calamity that's around you, it's the faith that should be within you in the midst of the storm. The idea that the Messiah is in the boat with you. And if he's in the boat with you in the storm, you're, you're going to be okay. He says, where's your power? Where is your mentality? And that to me is the greatest story. That no matter what storms are raging around us, no matter what our circumstances are, the Messiah is in the boat with us. And if we lean on him, he'll do a couple things. Either one, he'll calm the storm because we invite him in, or he will give us the ability and the strength to make it through. Fantastic. Do you know what? You have just given a gift to thousands and thousands of pastors that are currently watching this because they got a sermon for this weekend, Sam. That's what they got. You just give them gold. So thank you so much. So this whole idea of a greater story, part of your story, and you alluded to it earlier on, your story is, um, and it's an expanding story, it's a story of diversity. Um, um, I'm from Northern Ireland, and I know that Dr. Martin Luther King had a massive impact on some of our politicians that really helped them on the road of reform that needed to happen in our country, but also to do it in a peaceful right as well. And you were just saying like your roots are right there at the Martin Luther King Center. Can you just talk about your own story and how that's um, helping you help others today in the whole world of a diversity? Yeah, I mean, I think overall, you know, we are in a critical time in our nation and in our world. I think, I don't think we've been here in the last 40 years. Um, this is one of the greatest opportunities in the last 40 to 50 years that we've had to truly shift um, the conversation and the climate in this country and around the world as it pertains to the liberation of black and brown people and the multiculturalism that I believe God is calling us to all live in. I often have said this, um, that over this past summer, we were living in what I call the double pandemics, mm. <laughs> the COVID-19, yeah. and then also the liberation of black and brown people. And what I believe that the Holy Spirit, now what I believe the Lord was doing is lifting up the hood of not just America, but of our world. And he said, let's clean out some of the cobwebs uh, that, we, that, that, we, that we forgot about. I often say this that obviously the job started many years ago in many of our countries with making this world better as it pertains mm -hmm. to uh, racial reconciliation and all and, and all and multiculturalism the job was started but now the job 
has to be finished. We, we got to finish the job that was started a long time ago. And I'll say this, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit, I don't believe that God is done. I think that he, there's a reason that he has allowed for a lot of this unrest to take place and for us to find ourselves in what is such a tension-filled moment because he think he wants us to deal with this. It's on his heart, um, and therefore he is pushing us to be one. The scriptures say that Jesus prayed that we would be mm-hmm. one. So anything standing in the way of us being one, I believe that um, he's going to work tirelessly <laughs> and allow certain things to take place so that we can deal with this, get to the bottom of it, and truly come together. My story, I grew up in the Black community, all Black environment, Black friends, Black music, Black food, I mean, whatever you want to call it, Black culture, uh, Black church. And I left a mega church where I was on staff um, because we went through some things, and I ended up at North Point with Andy Stanley, which when I got there, I often describe as the Christian gap. Okay, it was was white people everywhere, right? I mean, it was just, I'd never seen so many. Um, It it doesn't look like that today. It's gotten a lot better or just more more diverse. Um, But those were polarizing experiences for me. And it it allowed for me to develop a perspective around why we are not coming together and why the the tension is so high and why it's so difficult for us to come together um, than ever ever before. It gave me a true perspective into the mind of black people, into the mind of white people, into the mind of minorities, and also, you know, uh, just multiculturalism to, to really see where we're missing each other. Because the idea, honestly, is that we're missing each other. That's the problem. Mm. We're missing each other. There's an intellectual uh, gap between the two of us, a gap in understanding um, that when w- that when we truly do come into understanding, things shift. The, mm. the work in this hour is us coming together. Yeah. So I could go for three days on this topic, but <laughs> I'll yeah. stop right there for now. Yeah, but you, you said a, a phrase twice there. You talked about uh, the liberation of uh, black and brown people in yeah. America. Do you, do you want to try and just help us and educate us? What does that look like practically for the church in America to get behind that concept and, and, and actually support it? Yeah, um, you know, Dr. Dr. King always said um, that there are two Americas. He always said that, that there are two Americas. In other words, if I'm black and you're white and we're sitting across the table from one another, we're living in two different worlds. Mm-hmm. Two different worlds in the same world. Um, and I think for us as the church, we've got to do everything that we can to bridge that gap. In other words, how do we make one world of our two worlds? And that, that's been the greatest tension. Um, he often said specifically about the church that Sunday morning is often the most segregated hour in America. And unfortunately, that's still true to this day. Uh, what I love about Bayside is that um, you guys are actively pursuing a lot of this. And I know it hasn't been easy, especially this last season, um, for, for, for you guys, not just you guys, but for many churches around the world. Um, but but you're choosing to lean in in spite of the tension that may that may come with it. But I'll say this, you know, if our history is messy, which it is, 400 years of oppression, which we all know is true, mm-hmm. 
then the process in which we have to go down to, to right the wrongs of history is going to be a little messy as well. The question is, is are we okay with the mess? And here's what we know. Jesus always ran towards the mess. Always. There was, obviously he was with the prostitutes. He was with the drug, you know, he was with the tax collector. He was with, he always went after the mess. He was always in the middle of the mess, helping to right the wrong. And I think for us as the church, we have to be okay with getting a little bit messy uh, during this season, knowing that on the other side of the mess is reconciliation. But here's another thing I'll say. When I first started off in ministry, uh, a mentor of mine told me that ministry was doing surgery without losing the patient in the process. Wow. And I love that phrase because I think that in this hour, as we are coming up with different strategies and pursuing other things on how to actually work through this, we, we, we either choose one or two. And every now and then we see this third option, but it's either one or two. Either I'm not going to get in the mess at all or I'm just gonna step in it with everything that I have and just <laughs> and yeah. just fumble my way through. And just, I don't care what anybody, right? And so I think for us, it's not an option for us to not be in the mess. I mean, that is the work of the church, to be the hope of the world, to be the light of the world. God's calling us to walk into the darkness. So we don't have a, a choice to stay out of it. We have to walk in it. And as a sidebar, prophetically, many churches that will, that will be the leaders of this next generation and in this next season will be the ones that actually lean in. So I think there are many churches that wanna preserve who they are by staying out, not understanding that this next generation is, is going to be running towards the leaders that are actually leaning in like they always have been. With that being said, I think all of us, we, need, we, 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 got, we have to start leaning on the third option more, which is how do we actually get the sickness out without killing the person in the process. Mm -hmm. How can we as a church progress together without losing each other? And, and it is a way, um, there is a way to do it, but it, but, but it requires patience. It requires love. It requires truth. It, and most importantly, and this is the biggest one, it requires fortitude mm. and perseverance. I, again, I could go down this road. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you come in right now before I keep going. Okay. No, no. We're going to keep going down. We're going to get really practical here. Uh, you've been involved in actually coaching um, organizations and churches on diversity. So I want you specifically to speak to um, a white evangelical pastor out there who has a heart to create greater diversity on staff, but he or she is just perplexed at this moment in time. What, what, what's the first few steps that they can start making some serious progress? Wow. Yeah, I mean, I always say, the, I, I'm paraphrasing because my brain just jumped to 18 different solutions at one time. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the first one. As I've been able to spend time with many pastors, before you do anything, I think you have to create a goal. That's a very practical solution, but it is one of the things that I see missed oftentimes. We don't have a clear goal or a target that we're running after. We just say we want to be diverse. Oh, I got to diversify, right? For many of us, it's a reaction, right? It's a, um, 
okay, the world is going crazy, this, that, and the third. I, I need to do something. We got to, you know, we get caught. Oh my gosh, we got to do something. And we often just jump to hire a black person, hire a Hispanic, hire Asian. I just get somebody in here, right? I mean, we got to do something. And we just, and we jump to the easiest, mm. quote unquote, solution before we've even had a, an opportunity to define a goal. And my question always, but when I consult, I always say, what's your goal? I, I, I know that you want to diversify, yeah, but let's, like you said, let's get practical. What is the North Star for you? So let's say we look up in, in five years. What do you want this church to be like? What do you want this staff to look like? Come on, put a, for some of us, put a percentage on it. You want mm -hmm. 50% of your staff to be diverse? I mean, what, what do you want? Many people, I don't want to, I don't want to get a goal. I'm like, well, here, here's what, here's what happens when you don't have a goal. You mm -hmm. don't hit it. <laughs> when you yeah. don't have a goal, you don't hit it. And that's, that's how we found ourselves in this mess that we find ourselves in, in America and around the world, especially in the church. We've never had a goal. We just, we just had an, an ideal, but we never got down to, here's what I want. So that's the first thing I would say, get really intentional about the goal, even as far as percentages. Because if you don't define it, what I often find is that we naturally, all of us, drift towards what's most comfortable and drift towards what's easiest, which is what has already been. So you have yeah. to shut the system. I'm going to jump in here, Sam, on, on this one, because you, you know Nicky Gummel. Yeah. Uh, from Holy Trinity to Brompton. He's yeah. just incredible. Uh, but through all of this, and that's even London, he just felt they needed to do something in the church regarding staffing. And they looked at it and said, it is a multicultural city, 42% of London, multicultural. And they just said, hey, well, we're going to staff along those lines. We are going to make sure we're going to bring it up to that level. So they, 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 they looked at it, they picked a goal, and they're going after it in a rigorous yeah. way. Yeah. So uh, I think that's brilliant. So talking about establishing this goal, what that looks like, and, and how people then get a strategy after that. Yeah, I, I love that you brought up Nikki because I, when I had some time to spend with him um, and his team out in London and at HTB, you know, Alpha headquarters in the SIDS, right? Um, I know some, I know actually some of the minorities that, um, were in the first class, if you will, of them shocking the system and bringing some things in. And I love that you brought him up because he got so passionate about it. I mean, he just, here's the goal, right? I mean, and, and that, that's what you have to do if you're going to shock the system. But he even got down to some intentionality when we talk about strategy, um, in terms of, okay, if this is our goal, then that means that we need to bring this many minorities in for the first year. Mm -hmm. It means we need to bring this many minorities in for the second year. And then it became, well, what are the barriers that are in the way? Well, for some of them, it was location. For some of them, it was, it was certain uh, finance. For some of them, it was certain requirements that just because we grew up in a certain, in a different culture, just didn't have. I always I often say, you know, when I came from the black church to the white church, um, the priorities were different in terms of how they spent money, right? In the black church, um, there were, uh, there was a, there was a heavy emphasis on the musicians. So the MDs, like mu the musicians run the black. I mean, it's just like, because music is such mm -hmm. a large part of, um, of the black church. It was the musicians and it was also the preachers. If you, you were preaching and you were singing or, or playing, like it was paramount 
while and so that's I was wired perfectly to fit into mm-hmm. the black church. But when I came over to the more predominantly white church, musicians and necessarily communicators were look, but they weren't king directors, leaders, right of departments, uh, uh, system 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 leaders in a sense like people that created systems and uh, detailists those were the things that were more important can you execute a system can you lead a team can you do this and so it took a while for me to develop certain things um, that would be valuable in that culture and so again go back to nikki i think he noticed that and said okay that means that there will be certain requirements that we would have for certain individuals that we would have to switch for this to get people in the door so that we can level the playing field and culturally get to where we need to go. And so I, I would venture to say, well, after you get your goal, you want to sit down and really do a SWOT analysis, mm-hmm. really do a SWOT analysis. What's your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are your you know, opportunities for growth, so on and so forth, and study that thing at a high level so that you can come up with a solution that truly makes sense. Here's the problem. For many of us, when we start to get into the strategy, we realize we we really didn't care about it as much as we thought we did. Because here's what I noticed with leaders, and this is what I always have to challenge leader, leaders on that want to go down this road. Um, when we get there, it's, all right, great, we got there, but now we got to work hard. It's like, whoa, you mean I got I to gotta read a book? You mean I, I, I've got to sit, we've got to, we have to change our systems. Wait, we have to, we have to look more. It's going to take us longer. Wait a minute. And it's, it's like, I got to get back to Sunday. I got, I got some, and it's like, this is a bigger thing than I thought it was going to be. And it's going to require more effort and more time. And most leaders just pull out and go, well, okay, we'll get back to it. And that's why, you know, that's why after you yeah. get your goal, you know, you, in your, you have to become committed, get your strategy, become committed. How committed are you really to the process? And for many of us, I think if we were honest, we would say we were 50% committed and not, not a hundred percent. We were there. The, the idea sounded good, but when it started to get to the real work, um, that's when we usually get out. So I could keep going. Oh no, it's great. It's, it's great wisdom, great advice. So it seems that what God is doing in your life, Sam, is part of your greater story. He's using you as a bridge builder in diversity. But another bridge that you seem to be building is through the generations. Um, God's given you great insight into Gen X and uh, down into millennials, all, all of that, Gen Z, and also boomers. And you just seem to be able to work quite effortless, uh, effortlessly between them. What advice would you give to younger leaders today find themselves in a church system, a business organization, and they're serving, let's say, two generations above them. How do they best operate in a system like that? Wow. Um, You know, one of the things that I would say that I've learned over the years in any system is that what creates opportunity and acceleration and favor, if you will, is always value. Mm. It's always value. I think a lot of young leaders and leaders in general make the mistake of confusing likability with value. In other words, you like me, so why don't you elevate me? You like me, you believe in me, so why don't you open doors for me? You like me, you believe in me, so why don't I have this opportunity and this... And, and they confuse likability 
with value. And just because somebody likes you, it doesn't mean that you're actually adding value. Mm-hmm. And if you're not adding value, who cares how much they like you? Now, does likability go a long way? 100%. The perfect picture is when people like you and you're also good at what you do. That's the perfect picture. But I will say this. In many cases, um, you, you, if likability is not, let's not say it's zero, but let's say it's low, but value is extremely high. Usually the one that is the most valuable will be the one that accelerates in any organization. Mm-hmm. And so I would venture to say, make sure that you're likable because I want to say this, like, I mean, if you're valuable, but everybody hates you now, it doesn't, it doesn't matter because you're not getting anything. It, it kills your value and you'll, you'll eventually be, you know, fired, <laughs> let go from the organization. I mean, let's just be demoted, excommunicated, wherever you have you want to describe it. So people need to like you. Likeability is highly underestimated at times. But I also think that bringing value, especially for the millennial generation, for us, um, it, it has been uh, underestimated greatly. And we, and we, and we tend to connect uh, our ability to be liked with, with value. And we think that likability in itself is, and it is valuable, but it's not actually the number one thing that creates value. So I would figure out how to become extremely phenomenal at whatever role you're trying to do. And can I go a little deeper and say, let's say you're, you're in a situation as a leader and you realize, oh my gosh, I'm in a position that I'll never be able to bring value in because I suck at it. Let's just, I said, here's what I know. Don't ask me to schedule uh, any planning center. Don't ask me to send any mass email. Don't ask me to schedule a meeting. Don't ask me to do a report. Don't don't ask me to do it because you're going to get 18 emails of the same meeting request. And it's going to be for different times. And everybody's going to be wondering who sent this email. I did. (laughs) It was me. Right. I will never be able to bring you extreme. It doesn't matter how mad I, how hard I try. I'm going to always suck at it. And so I have to be honest with myself and be honest with the leaders around me and saying, hey, I need to get out of this role because I'm never going to succeed in it. And I'm never going to bring value, which means I will never find favor in the organization. I'll never be accelerated. And I'll never be ultimately happy. And so I think that young leaders have to be bold enough, honest enough with themselves, bold enough to talk to their superior about the, the, uh, the idea that they suck in this and not lazy. We're not talking about being lazy and just, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. No, I mean, being extremely honest about what you can and cannot do and putting yourself in the right position. Can I give an example? I have no. to give it. Um, Here's what I realized. You know, when I came from the black church, I did music. And again, I was great at it in terms of gospel. I could produce. I mean, it was amazing. Like, I could go. I mean, I was like little mini Kirk Franklin. Like it just wasn't. It was just like, come on, uh, lift your hand. Like it was fine. And it was extremely valuable in the black church. Mm. But when I came over to a different denomination, to a different, it wasn't valuable anymore. They don't want me to be Kirk Franklin, right? I mean, it's like in that system, Kirk Franklin didn't work. And so what did I do? I found myself now not being amazing in this specific role, even though I'm doing music, I realized this genre of music, I cannot execute 
excellently in. I, I'll never be able to execute very at a high level. So what did I do? I had to I had to go on a mission to discover what about me is valuable in this system. That's really smart. And I realized it was more of the communication. It was more of the hosting. It was more of the preaching. It was more of the speaking, the TED talk, the whatever it is. And then I realized, you know what? This is something I can be great at. And so I started to, you know, what, what is my, Malcolm Gladwell? You're, I don't know. Was it 80? You're 80 hours, 10,000 hours, right? Yeah. I, I started to, to, to really go. And I started to find favor. Value is everything. Figure out how to add value as a young leader or as any leader. And you will always excel. Fabulous coaching. Let, let, let's reverse this. We're on the Ray Johnston podcast. And Ooh. I just got to say, Ray, phenomenally secure leader. And that's played out by the type of leaders that he attracts. And in my time, five years here, I've just watched him attract A leaders all the time, A leaders and empower them and be behind them. Uh, how would you coach, let's say, those mature leaders that um, are now attracting younger leaders? How do they avoid insecurity, remain strong, empower, coach, mentor, release, all of those things? Sam, you've got to give us this great wisdom in like in about two minutes. I, I, I need those pearls from you. In two minutes, I want to clarify, we are talking to older leaders about how to lead younger leaders at a higher right. level. Am I right? Um, I, I would venture to say, um, the number one thing you can do for a young leader is spend time with them. And I know that's like, well, that's really simple. It's like, here's what I want to say. Okay. When I was 21, I had been given three departments to be at an extremely large church, had 130 leaders underneath me, 130. And I'm 21. And I was dying. Mm. I was dying because I had been thrown into this position, but never developed. And so I was screaming for someone to help me understand leadership and to help me. In that. And there was a guy named Darius Wise who took me under his wing and he didn't even, it wasn't even a ton of time, but once a week we would get together and I said, teach me about leadership. And in him spending time with me, he was able to understand what my weaknesses were, what my strengths were, what my passions were, so on and so forth. And he was able to truly lead me well. And, and it was so amazing um, that, that moment. So I, I would say that spend as much time as possible. The second thing I would say, get rid of your insecurities as much as you can. There's nothing worse than an insecure leader. Um, or if you know you're going to be insecure about something, don't bring somebody under you that you know is going to agitate whatever it is that you're working out. Because many of us lie to ourselves and we say, no, I can handle this. And you bring somebody in and you're not able to handle it and it just blows up. Do your work as Iyanla, Mother Iyanla. Y'all don't know Iyanla, but if you ever Google her, she spends a lot of time with Oprah. And she always says, beloved, do your work. Mm. Beloved, do your work. Counseling. That's what she's talking about. Your deep soul work. There's nothing greater than an older, healthy leader leading uh, someone that's underneath them. The, 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 the horror stories are usually from the leaders that have low self-esteem, that have insecurities that they never dealt with from their childhood, oh, yeah. from their old jobs that's destroying them now. 
So older leaders' advice is spend time with younger leaders, lose your insecurities. And with younger leaders is lean into your value, the value that you that you bring instead of just likability. But I'm going to pick up the likability thing because I'm, you have a lot of likability, okay? I've been in one room with you for about 36 hours. You always walk in, you got your smile. You're just a vibrant person and you are, I'm sure everyone is here. Come on, put it in the chat. We all like Sam. You're so likable. I, that's important. How, how do you become that infectious, vibrant person? I suppose, I just, how, how do you be like Sam? Because you just got something about you. Man, you know, that's an interesting question. I, I got that question a lot while I was doing interviews on this book and people would ask me about my parents. And I said, you know, if we were not likable, it was a problem in our house. Mm. If we showed up to a meeting or with a family and we didn't greet them and not just greet them, but greet them with enthusiasm. Hey, good to see you. Um, my name's Sam. Yes. Okay. Look, Oh, that's a great piano. All right. If we didn't come in with compliments, if we weren't likable, my, you know, I, I had a black mom. She pulled you to the side. Boy, what, what, what are you doing? Right. I mean, it just, it just was what it, she'd give you those. She put her lips together and just, you know, just what are you going to get your act together? What? You know what I mean? It was, and, and, and so it was a problem if you weren't likable. It was like, you better walk in this house, even, don't matter how, even if you're sick and you better speak to these people. And so I watched my parents model that. And because they demonize um, not being likable, it became a goal. And then I started, the older I got, the more I realized um, how much of a value add it was and how much um, it was rare um, for, for, for many individuals. I think for many of us, whether we're introverts or extroverts, we find likability as a chore. You know, it becomes a chore. It's like, man, I have to, I don't want to work that hard, right? Um, and so I, I think for me, I just made a decision because I'm actually, and you're going to be surprised by this, and most people will, I am actually by textbook definition an introvert, by textbook. In other words, I don't get energy from people. So when I'm around people, I get off stage, I don't want to talk to anybody ever. And so it's just like, hey, so I have to try really hard to do it. But when I'm, there, there's a moment I hit a period and it's done. I'm like, I got to go sit down. With that being said, like Sam, well, how, if you're that, then why do you, how are you, I had to make a decision a long time ago. I wanted to make people feel good when I was in their presence. And so for me, it's actually me trying. Um, and now it's just become, and I already know I'm going to expend a lot of energy. It's just going to come out every time, but it's because it's who I want to be. And yeah. it's who I want. I want people to experience me this way. So I would even ask leaders out there to ask the question, how do you want people to experience you? Mm. How do you want people to, do you want them to say, wow, I mean, you know, I don't, is she here? Right. I mean, it's like, is she here? Does she like me? Do you want people to have to try to figure you out all the time? Um, or do you want to tell people what to think about you? And you really can determine that by how you decide to be, what you decide to give off. And yes, it's extra work. But it actually goes a long way, especially in organizations. Wow. Sam, this is so good. One last question. All of these leaders that are out there, they're listening, and, and you know what I'm talking about here. They, a lot of them feel hopeless at the moment. They feel frustrated. They're longing for 2021, praying for a brand new day, a vaccine, whatever, a vacation, whatever they need. 
What was the final words of encouragement you would like to bring to them? Wow. I would say this, and this has been my message to leaders in this season. Um, what we're in is a change. Yes, it's a pandemic, but it's also at the core, a cha it's change. And that's what's killing people the most. It's just change. It's, oh my gosh, now I have to be in my house every day. Like I have to wear a mask. I have to, what is going on? It's a change. The economy has changed. Opportunities have changed. The way we live our life has changed. And what I would say that is, is what's true is that in every change, there's always two things, opportunities and challenges. Always. Whenever you have a change, there's always an opportunity and there's always a challenge. I'll give you an example. Lost my uncle, lost my aunt, lost my biological father from COVID-19 in the first four weeks. At the same time, Zoom stock was through the roof. <laughs> it was like Zoom made more money than we, I mean, it was like, what in the world? And Netflix, and here's a question I had, how can the two be true at the same time? How can I experience and how can so many be experiencing so much loss and calamity and darkness and, and people experiencing so much triumph mm -hmm. because it's always present in change, challenge, opportunity. Mm -hmm. The question for leaders that I have in this season is, are you going to spend so much time managing your challenges that you miss the divine opportunities that may be present in this moment? And so I want to encourage every leader out there to not just spend so much time managing the challenges. You have to manage your challenge. I had to mourn my uncle. I had to preach the funeral. I had to mourn my biological father. I had to mourn my aunt. But I also had to get busy about establishing a new economic floor for my family and knew I couldn't stay still because, again, there were individuals out there winning. And I, you can still win in the midst of so much loss if you find time to recognize the opportunities with families, with, with your family, with your business, with your health, with your finance, so many different things that can, opportunities that unique opportunities that we have because we're at home. Can you do it? Don't just spend so much time on the challenges, focus on the opportunities as well. It's great, great uh, wisdom. I just need you to make me one promise, Sam, before you go. And that is when we get over all of this craziness, you promise you're gonna come and visit us at Bayside. Listen, I was in Cali a couple of weeks ago. I should have rolled through. Oh, oh <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I will 100% come. Love what you guys do. You know, I'm a big fan of every, Ephraim and Jason and Ray and Andrew. I mean, you know, it goes down the list. Um, so honored to be here. And um, I'm just grateful to all of you for this time. Well, it's been our privilege today. Thank you uh, so much for being on the Ray Johnston podcast. And God bless you, my friend. All right, there you go. Thanks again to Andrew for that interview, and Sam Collier for being uh, being part of the of the podcast and now part of the Thrive family. Mm -hmm. You know, he's uh, he didn't even know it, but he he was a he was a distant cousin, and now he's like <laughs> now he's like a you know an uncle. That's right, uncle, Uncle Sam. By the way, by the way, we we call we we like to refer to Ray Johnston as the Grand Poobah. Right. Of of thrive and a Bayside, so what is Andrew McCourt? If if Ray's the Grand Poobah, then what nickname or or you know handle do we need to give to Andrew? What do you call what do you call an Irish uncle? Well, good question. I'm would not sure. Happy? That's that would be like a grand grandfather, would it? Like it? Patty? 
Um, yeah, I'm not sure, but I, I feel like know. we need to work on that. We we may even need to get some feedback from the from the Thrive family here. Yeah, yep. listens in to the podcast on a regular basis. If you're out there and you've got an idea of what Andrew McCourt's name handle should be, uh, go ahead and hit us up. Podcast at thriveconverge.org. I'm not even sure that works anymore, but let's just use it. Let's use it. It works. Podcast we'll get it up and running if not. Yeah, that's right. Podcast at thriveconverse.org. Hit us up. Let us know. Uh, let us know what your thoughts are. And, and any other feedback you have, we'd love to hear from you. Hit us Absolutely. Up. And while you're, while you're leaving feedback, mm-hmm. check out the, uh, the slew of growing Thrive podcasts. Now you've got the Thrive Women's Leadership Podcast, which is just doing really, really well. So make sure you, you go subscribe and leave some uh, lovely reviews there as well. Yeah. Uh, leave some emojis. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, Ray Johnson leadership podcast, which I've had the, the, the pleasure CJ of getting to be the, uh, you know, the intro outro guy on there for the last several episodes. So yeah, man, I'm, I'm, my voice is everywhere within the thrive, uh, within the thrive network. Man. But those are, yeah, those are, those are both great other podcasts. You need to, you need to put in your, in your subscribe rotation and go to thriveconference.org. You can see, you can actually watch, if you want to watch the conversation in its full form, Andrew and, and Sam, you know, that, that's available along with many other interviews. So we're, we're bringing you content in lots of different forms. And of course, this one is in your ears. So right. if you're on the treadmill, if you're mowing the lawn, if you're on a run, you might be driving, um, doing the dishes. You may be on the Peloton. Mm. Have you seen this new thing, the mirror? Have you seen that? CD? Oh yeah. 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 That, that I'm, I'm a little scared of the mirror. <laughs> I don't know why, but it, it just seems like there's something intrusive about the mirror as a workout partner. Uh, right. But you know, technology is bringing us a long way. So maybe some of you might be on the mirror right now. Or you might be you in the mirror. The mirror. The mirror is interesting. I mean, we probably do a whole show on just this type of technology. I've got a couple of friends who are getting it. What's tripping me out is that, you know, part of what the mirror does is show you when your form isn't right. So lift yeah. those elbows up, Brad, or keep your arms straight, right? That's, that's some of the things that the mirror might do, which begs the question, is there a camera? Like you can do live exactly. instruction. Like, are they watching us? I don't know. Exactly. You know, that's, that's why I'm saying it feels a bit intrusive. Yeah, I'm a digital guy and all that, but still, I've got my limits, man. And this kind of gets right up to them. Yeah, I think Lululemon, by the way, is the are they, are they the organization, the company behind the mirror? I feel I like know. I saw that somewhere. Really, I may be wrong, but anyway, uh, if you've got a mirror, we'd love to know what you think. So <laughs> hit us up, uh, tell us what we're what we're missing, or you know what we, what we may be actually like thinking correctly on. Uh, but wherever you are, we think we we appreciate you listening. We always, uh, we always want to add value to you and help you be a healthy leader and part of a thriving church. So that's our goal. And I think we're, we're going to sign off for this episode. Anything else you want to add before we sign off, CJ? That's it. We'll see you next time. 